This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. The presidency of George W. Bush promised to restore integrity to the White House, but instead it has been plagued by scandal. In his new book, House of Ill Repute, Reflections on War, Lies, and America's Ravaged Reputation, our guest today, William Rivers Pitt, guides readers through a jaw-dropping series of presidential blunders, from the missing weapons of mass destruction and the Halliburton contracting scandals to the NSA's warrantless wiretaps and the incompetent response to Hurricane Katrina. Pitt served as press secretary to presidential candidate Dennis Kucinich, worked as the managing editor of truthout.org, and is currently the editorial director of Progressive Democrats of America. William Rivers Pitt, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing today? I am hanging in. I'm doing all right. All right, very good. Enjoying the slightly warmer weather here. (laughs) Now, this is in Massachusetts? Yeah, we're cracking 40 today. It's a miracle. Really? (laughs) And has global warming arrived there yet? I'm sorry? Has global warming arrived there yet? Well, we had a really, really warm December, but it got Arctic over Uh, the last month and a half or so. So everyone was thinking about it, and now not so much. Yeah? Well, is it extremes that you're experiencing? There was... I have uh, I've lived here my whole life. I've gone through warm Decembers before. Generally, it was I I found it to be nothing more than a, a sort of a broader you know pattern of weather. But it was at least interesting for me when December was as warm as it was uh-huh. to hear people discussing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the possibility that it exists. It was a it was a nice little move forward. Yeah. Is is I noticed in the last essay that you you uh, wrote you you had uh, why does the cent- uh, why does the twenty first century suck was the title of it. Uh, could you explain that a little bit? Why does it suck? Well, that, the inspiration for that essay was that ridiculous um, fake bomb threat, you know, calamity uh-huh. that we had here a few weeks ago with the uh, cartoon characters from the uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force or whatever it was. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As I dealt with that whole issue myself and kind of encompassed the... the it, I found the whole thing to be somewhat frightening uh, in, a, you know, in a broader context simply because... It was uh, it felt to me to a degree to be a dry run for a really bad day. We yeah. are creating terrorism over in Iraq. This is an idea that I've been talking about for years as a warning for going in there in the first place and staying there as long as we have. If we're doing that, then that means inevitably that terrorism is going to show up over here. And I was worried that this was happening that day. There was a... a a different reaction from people who were in their 20s, you know, younger folks. They thought it was a big joke. They thought it was pretty funny. And it occurred to me, you know, if you were 21, 22 years old, you were 17 when we invaded Iraq. You were 15 when September 11th happened. You were 13 when the Supreme Court took over the duties and responsibilities of electing officials uh, when they put <laughs> George in in the first place. So Thus far, the 21st century for younger people um, has been anything but a, a special experience. It's been a, a dark, and it, everything has been turned on its ear. Mm-hmm. So what I was trying to reach for was that sense, with this essay, was that sense of just everything has gone sideways. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I mean, as much as, <laughs> as much as it troubles me to have to deal with this stuff myself, I, I can't imagine what it is like to be a little bit younger with you know, no memory of the Cold War or any of that whole experience trying to decide which way is up in this day and age. 
do you think that the media overreacted to what was going on there in in Boston with these? Uh, well, overreacted is a, overreacted is an interesting phrase. Yeah. I think this whole thing was of the media, by the media, and for the media. You had an advertising agency shilling for a TV show in a way that got the news media people uh, gave them the opportunity to talk about it ad nauseum. It was a perfect, you know, tinkers to evers to chance. It was a yeah. perfect thing for the media. So, did they overreact or did they do what they've been doing and make the situation worse? I think that they. They, they definitely made it worse because yeah. none of us here in Boston saw a picture of these things for hours, and the media was talking about, oh, there are things with electronics and wires strapped to bridges, and it scared the hell out of everybody. Yeah. These yeah. guys, I think, I mean, it's it, you know, it's the it's a, it's a standard reaction. You get more ratings when you scare people. CNN's viewership went up five hundred percent after September eleventh. That's a lesson these guys haven't forgotten. Yeah. I was watching. Uh... A countdown last night, Keith Olbermann's program, and Michael Schur was on the uh, the gentleman who was the head of the Bin Laden out group and all um, for the CIA chasing Bin Laden, and also the author of Imperial Imperial Hubris, and he was saying in all, no uncertain terms, he said that there will be a nuclear detonation inside the United States by a, a group a terrorist group. And and hearing that, I mean, I I think that's it's sobering, obviously, to hear that, and we have to take it seriously. But the mindset that we're creating for ourselves in the future is just a, a, a it's a terrible mentality that we're creating. And I, I, I'm, I'd be curious your reaction to, to, to that kind of information that we're being bombarded with. Well, that was the dissonance that really uh, got me to thinking about uh, the situation in Boston. Yeah. On the one hand, um, as I was saying, yeah. one of the... The axiomatic arguments of the against the war, against you know going in and attempting to knock off regimes in, Iraq, in the Middle East, is that if we go in, militarily invade and kill a slew of civilians, we are going to manufacture the very terrorism that supposedly we're fighting against. So that's on the one hand, and that's correct. But on the other hand, a lot of people will immediately dismiss warnings like the one you just described yeah, yeah, yeah. because. So often this administration has gone out of its way to terrify people in order to get, you know, a, a, a political, you know, gain a, to gain a political advantage. That's happened dozens of times. So that's accurate. These two things, unfortunately, can't exist in the same space. If we are manufacturing terrorism, then sooner or later it's going to show up over here. Whether it's nuclear terrorism is something that I really can't, I can't speak to. But the, the tension between... Understanding the consequences of our, you know, policies in Iraq and in the Middle East, while trying to make sure that we don't fall for the kind of constant bombardment of "be afraid," you know, plastic sheeting and duct tape, hide under your bed, don't be afraid of everything. You can't function like that. So that's one of the. For, for, to me, it's one of the great central tensions of our time right now. We're speaking with William Rivers Pitt. The book is House of Ill Repute. And, and you said in House of Ill Repute that the war in Iraq is by order of magnitude worse than Vietnam. Uh, what makes you say that? Well, because as bad as Vietnam, and it's certainly not to diminish um, the impact or calamity that was Vietnam, but the international ramifications are far more uh, severe. The whatever as bad as Vietnam got, and as the potential for it to, have, you know, potentially to have been worse, mm -hmm. it did not affect the 
lifeblood of the global economy. It did not involve the inspiration of cadres of people who would come over here to volunteer for suicide missions. It did not exacerbate a, uh, a, 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 a religious-based uh, mania that, le- that leads people to uh, commit unbelievable atrocities. And I mean, it's a much it's a much broader discussion because that would that that tends to you know it tends to sound like I'm saying that all of Islam is some crazy death cult. That is, of course, nonsense. But we are dealing with a sub sub subset of the religion that has been <clears throat> brought under the wing of a degree of fanaticism that we never dealt with in Vietnam, and it the the impact of inspiring and bringing forth these kind of people, um, if those attacks were to happen on our soil, for example, the effect upon the Constitution, if something were to happen here, we would go immediately to what they call Code Red, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, which is, you know, martial law, the suspension of habeas corpus, the suspension of posse comitatus, and the end of constitutional law in this country. These kind of things were not on the table when Vietnam was happening. I mean, there were threats, of course. Nixon was pushing the boundaries as far as he could, as was Johnson, and it was a terrible time. But at no point was the situation in Vietnam going to create the kind of potential reciprocal attacks at home here that could spell the end of constitutional rule in this country, which is pretty much one of the things that we are dealing with as a consequence of the actions um, of the Bush administration in the Middle East. It, it, as far as the Vietnam analogy is concerned, it took the population a long time to understand, first of all, to know where Vietnam was, and then to understand what we were doing there. But it's, in, in my frame of reference, it seemed that there was a lot more discussion about the ramifications and magnitude. Once the discussion began, there was a lot more in, an in-depth uh, analysis and understanding on the part of the population. And I don't see among the sort of political and talking heads class, there's not much of a of a discussion as to why we are there, and really in the broader sense of things, and 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 the why there is so much history, the, the history of Iraq and our relationship to it seems to be very very um, not discussed as much as it, it should be. Well, it's, it's such an apples and oranges discussion. This, uh, Vietnam was a Cold War fight right. and discussed within the context of the Cold War, and yeah. that carried with it its own imperatives. You're also talking about a time period in which the news media itself was more aligned towards informing the public. We're dealing today with, you know, back when Vietnam was a hot-button issue, um, the NBC Nightly News was something like 50% of that parent company's total profit. Mm-hmm. So... It was a, it was these were important um, it was important to the to the bottom lines of the industries that were supporting these news shows to tell people what was going on. NBC now is I think the NBC Nightly News is something like less than four percent of NBC's total profit. They're you know being owned by General Electric, of course. Mm-hmm. The depth of understanding that the news media is able to deliver to the American people is so. It's it's so shallow, and that, to a large degree, feeds into the problem that we have. People don't have an understanding of 
why we're there, why what you know decisions that that happened 20 years ago affect the now. There was an article a few weeks ago by it was a it was a funny article in a way, but it also made you want to put your head through a wall. One of the the main one of the main columnists who's been covering the Middle East for years went around to people in the White House, all these congressional chairs. This was before the flip over in November and tried to find out how many of these people understood the difference between Sunni and Shiite and didn't find anyone who really understood the cultural and religious differences that are at work in the Middle East, specifically in Iraq. If the people who are making the decisions don't have the basic understanding of it, the media itself isn't necessarily going to go out of its way to try to explain it to the American people. The, the more black and white these arguments are, the better. In terms of trying to have the media explain to us why we're there, there's a large degree of, you know, avoiding of culpability for this because, you know, back, you, of course you remember back in 2003 it was, well, of course there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And then a couple of years later it's, well, of course that's not true. There's this marvelous little drift where everybody's at fault, so no one's to blame, and specifically the media that bought that whole line of reasoning, hook, line, and sinker, now refuses to go back and examine the means by which they helped to deliver this talking point to the American people in the world, because they don't want to have to go back and admit that, to no small degree, their failure to comprehensively analyze the claims that were being made at the time led us into the position that we're in. Or really just to do their job and question the people who were telling these things. They did pretty pretty simple stuff, but yeah. it's it's an allergy it's an allergy to accountability, it's an allergy to self critique that has a lot to do with the lack of depth in any discussion that we're having. Because if you're gonna have a genuine discussion, the first question you're gonna ask is, you know, was this trip really necessary? Why are we here? And you cannot avoid looking at Judy Miller in the New York Times and her, you know, Ahmed Chalabi inspired <laughs> statements that there are weapons all over the place there. The rest of the media's immediate assumption that if the New York Times says it, it has to be true. And then we're off to the races from there. The, the, the national media, to no small degree, is a little bit like cats and water when it comes to self-analysis and self-critique. And in this case, the degree to which they failed has helped to get a lot of people killed, well, in, my, in my opinion. Yeah. This uh, whole discussion here brings to mind, at least my mind, Hillary Clinton and and her refusal to own up to her vote for the war. Do you think that uh, we're picking on her unnecessarily for that, or, or do you think it, that she really uh, should be torn apart? Well, I think anyone running for president should be torn apart. Yeah. I think anybody who stood up and supported that should be torn apart. I think that it's one of the reasons why I'm going to be really interested to see Dennis Kucinich operate in the next uh, debates, because mm-hmm. he's hardly mentioned in any of the mainstream discussions of candidates, and yet here's a man who's the only one running who was in Congress at the time, who voted properly, and brought something like 125 people along with him to vote against this war. She's going to do her tap dance about this. It's, I'm personally very uh, distressed that the presidential season has started so early because the Senate has incredibly important work to do, especially now that it has you know, changed hands. Because we're immediately into the campaign season, all of the people, it, our, an enormous number of people who are in a position to really throw some weight and bring forth a lot of important discussions in that body are going to be tepid and cautious and hang back because they 
they think they want to be president. You can pretty much write the Senate off for any important discussions for the next year or so. It has become a fully political 2008 campaign body. Any leadership on anything of import is going to come out of the House this time around. I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with William Rivers Pitt. The book is House of Ill Repute. Um, it was just like talking to the House, the, uh, I mean the Senate, with this the, the so-called failed attempt on the part of the Senate to pass the, the non-binding resolution um, on the war in Iraq. Uh, they didn't fail. I mean, they did fail, I guess, in the broad sense that it didn't pass the Senate because it needed a 60-vote uh, majority. What what was your what was your take on this? Did I mean we, what they got fifty six senators to vote or fifty four fifty six senators? They got, to vote? Yeah, they got fifty six. I think they came four short. Four short. Is this in your mind a failure on the part of the Senate? I mean, they did speak to a major, the majority of the Senate uh, said we, that we need to be. Uh, they need they passed the resolution on. What did you think of the resolution? Let's go back. What did you think of the resolution to start with? Well, on the one hand, you're, you're of course, frustrated by anything that's non-binding because it seems just like, uh, you know, a high school debate topic. Right. But on the other hand, it is my opinion, um, and I'm happy to see that it is a growing opinion within Congress. <clears throat> this whole discussion of should we withdraw, should we quote-unquote surge, should we not withdraw, when should we withdraw, all this, this whole discussion, the, the one place where this topic is not being discussed is in the White House, because they went into Iraq with the full intention of staying there forever. Yeah. So all of our you know, great exertions in attempting to come up with an effective withdrawal plan aren't really much of, much of a help until the White House decides or is dragged to the realization that a withdrawal, whether it be tomorrow or slow or any kind of withdrawal, is something that needs to happen. And that's a political question. It's not military. It's not tactical. It is purely political. And questions and debates on non-binding resolutions, once these people are able to get out of their way and actually pass them and have the debates, are essential, I think, to the development of that political pressure. If you were to shake me awake in the middle of the night and ask me how this is going to get resolved in the end, I think there's going to be an element of the final days of Watergate involved here. Yeah. You know, Bush and these guys have been professionals at ignoring the Democrats for as long as they've been in town. But 22 of the 34 senators who have to run 2008 are Republicans, and they're going to have this war and these awful decisions hanging around their necks. It is going to be the Republicans who eventually, I believe, will force this administration into some kind of a, a true and genuine withdrawal plan, because if not, they're going to wind up looking at a historic wipeout in the upcoming elections. We, as you know, the, the Democratic Party needs to continue to push this, non-binding resolutions or otherwise, but in the end, it is going to be the political pressure brought upon the administration. It needs to be that, because they have no intention of leaving, and I think it's going to wind up being the Republicans that bring that pressure to bear when, the, you know, after enough... Uh, political pressure is pushed is put upon them after enough attention is brought to the calamity of the war, and after they do a little bit of electoral math and look at the the potential for a complete wipeout uh, a couple of Novembers from now. What 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 troubles me so much about the the analysis that you've described, which is how feckless the Democrats appear to be in this in this process. They're the, they are a small, slight majority in the Senate and a very healthy majority in the House, and yet we're 
we're all, the discussion is now coming around to well, well how are the Republicans going to solve this problem? And my faith in their ability to come through this in anything but a very self-serving kind of way, which is the the the, the White House is going to say we're going to put this off for two years because we're out of here in two years, right? And the Senate Republicans are going to try to claim credit for an exit strategy, sure. and then once again the Democrats are going to be looking ineffectual, feckless, without a backbone, with nothing to show for this. Uh, my opinion is that somewhere along the line, this discussion has to come to a point where impeachment is on the table because nothing is going to happen until we start really threatening the White House with the removal of, of Dick Cheney and, and, and George Bush. And I, am, I, I think in, in theory, I absolutely agree with your opinion, but unfortunately, we've just had this long discussion about how they can't get out of their own way long enough to even get 60 votes on a non-binding resolution, that they are, in your words, too feckless to have a legitimate push on this. I don't, I can't imagine that these same people are going to be able to organize themselves to find 67 votes for an impeachment. I just don't, if John Warner can throw a hand grenade into the process of having a debate on a non-binding resolution that has no force in law, I can't imagine a scenario where you can put together 67 noses to line up for something like impeachment. Well, I, I, I do agree with what you just said. However, the, the House is now involved in something like 50 different investigations that are going on into the malfeasance of this uh, administration for the last six years. Which is why I was saying that you're going to see leadership on virtually every topic out of the House and not out of the Senate. Right. Yeah. Right. Waxman and Conyers and the rest of these guys, they're running straight at this. And right. hopefully, it is to be hoped that the information that comes out of these hearings will lead to a, at a minimum, a popular awakening of the degree to which we've all been deceived. And if it leads to an effective impeachment push, so much the better. You, there's no scenario. I mean, do you see a scenario here where where you see McConnell and Hagel and and uh, and uh, Trent Lott walking over to the White House and saying it's over? You cannot. We're not. We can't vote for any more money. You cannot continue this. At the same time, we have what five or six permanent military installations in Iraq. I just this clash. I don't see where how we resolve this thing. Well, it's again as I was saying before. Yeah. It's going to be that long walk to the White yeah, House. Yeah. Not necessarily you have to quit. But you have to recognize recognize that yeah. this is a failed policy, yeah. and you have to do it because if you don't, we're all going to be out of work. You're going to annihilate the Republican Party for a generation, which brings you to the next question is, do these guys actually give a damn? Yeah, that's, you know? that's the thing. Two years, they were already checked out. I, we had uh, Seymour Hersh on here not long ago, and he, basically the point was they've made – They've done everything they wanted to do. Absolutely. They've done everything. Now it's all, basically now they're just <coughs> kind of sweeping up. And uh, uh, so why, why, this is just so frustrating. I don't know if you can okay. hear it in my voice here, but what all do right. we do? <laughs> all right. <laughs> it, swings, it swings back to an argument that I make to a lot of, whenever I go on, more con, on conservative stations or I get into a debate with anybody, whether it be on the street or in a public forum, one point that I always bring up, which is, thankfully, finding more and more purchase among the people that I make this argument to, whatever else you want to call these guys, they're not Republicans. They were never Republicans. They fit under no definition of conservative Republican that has been on the table for as long as I can remember. These guys are something else. They've treated this war, and all of their policies have been nothing more or less than a smash-and-grab robbery on the Treasury. And a very small number of people have gotten extraordinarily wealthy off of the mayhem that we've been dealing with. But they're not 
in any way the kind of these are not your father's Republicans. So the question of whether or not they give a damn that their policies are going to drag down the rest of the party. Yeah. Um, it's an open question. You don't know if they if, if that kind of thinking is even on the menu. William Rivers Pitt, you're the editorial director of Progressive Democrats of America. What are they doing to fix things? Um, <laughs> long, slow, steady pressure. I mean, we uh-huh. the idea that the November election it heralded this great change. I think my hope was to get rid of this one party government, and that that at least was achieved. There are some rocks in the road now. Yes. But we didn't win. We didn't have some sort of uniting, unifying, coherent message so much as these guys were so bad that they beat themselves. And we're seeing this to a degree now, especially out of the Senate. There's no organized political philosophy or policy initiatives coming out of the Democratic caucuses because they still haven't made up their minds which way they want to run. We... uh, People like in the progressive in the progressive world just need to keep our shoulder to the wheel. The fact that these guys now have chairmanships and now have genuine power means that it is all the more important for us to stand on their shoulders and jump up and down and keep it's a tiny little crack opened in this mess back in November, yeah. and we have to lay in the pry bar and lean on it as hard as we can, mm-hmm. and it's going to take a very long time. It's going to be two or three or four or five or hell, ten elections before the terrible things that have taken place are able to be comprehensively undone, but mm-hmm. it has to be done because the alternative is, is not worth considering. Well, you guys are doing great work, and well, thank we you so really much. appreciate it, um, and... Uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're out of time right now. Um, William Rivers Pitt, the book is House of Ill Repute. Thanks for uh, being on Weekly Signals. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.